Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is March the 23rd, 2018. This is episode 2188 of the Survival Podcast. And it is uh, a Friday, Friday, Friday show. That means it's time for the Listener Council Q&A. I've got a bunch of stuff queued up for you to be a little bit longer of one. Since we missed a show Wednesday, I'm going to try to make it up to you with one of the more diverse uh, TSP expert council shows you've ever heard. So here's what we got on board today. The care and maintenance of today's VW TDIs with Charles Sandville, the humble mechanic. Choosing the location for your pond site with the number one permaculturist in the world, Jeffrey Lawton. Investing in crypto inside a retirement account with investment advisor extraordinaire John Pugliano. Thoughts on a rating system for local police departments from former law enforcement officer Dan Oman. Troubleshooting an Asian pear tree from Nick Ferguson Ferguson. Nick Nick Ferguson Ferguson. Yeah, Nick Ferguson Ferguson. Understanding proof of stake within cryptocurrency from Benjamin Fitz of Crypto Gulch. The skinny on sous vide cooking with Chef Keith. Building an AR-10. I know what you're thinking. Jack's going to take that one for his anchor segment. Nope. Guest appearance by retired Master Sergeant from the Air Force, J.R. Haley, who is an incredible AR-10 enthusiast, and I thought he was better to do this one than me. And then maintenance and care of flow-through wicking beds in an aquaponic system for me, myself, and I, Jack. And as we've made a, kind of a, uh, a habit of, Fridays are commercial-free now, so I'll just remind you real quick that if you want to support the show, you can join the Member Support Brigade, or the MSB for short. You can learn more about that by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on Members. And we have no history segment prepared for today, so we'll go right on into it. Let's start out with the care and maintenance of today's VW TDIs. What's up, TSP? It's Charles from HumbleMechanic.com. Today, taking David's question, and he says he is the proud owner of a new 2015 VW Golf TDI SEL. For you non-VW folks, that is the loaded up one. And yes, he could have very likely got a brand new 2015. For those of you that don't know, many of them sat on lots for a while waiting for the diesel gate nonsense. He wants to know if there's any special maintenance tips that I could give him. Uh, what oil, what fuel additives do I recommend, pitfalls to look out for. He also had a Mark I gas rabbit, which is the very first generation of the rabbit when he was a kid, and he loved it. I also had a couple of Mark I's as well. Very fun cars to drive. David's got a 50-mile commute, so this is actually probably a really great car for him. As far as maintenance goes. Guys, there's a book in your car that tells you exactly what the car needs, what it has to have. And that is a great guideline. I don't say though, whatever you do, follow the maintenance manual blindly because it kind of depends on maybe where you're at, how often you're using the car. David's putting a ton of miles on the car, which actually I think is a great thing for the car rather than the car sitting and not being driven very often. So let's take a fuel filter, for example. It's due every 20,000 miles on that car. 
if David puts that 20,000 miles on his car in 10 months, he's doing a fuel filter every 10 months. Take me, for example, someone that barely goes anywhere uh, now that I work from home, it would take me probably three years to hit that 20,000 mile mark. So we have to be a little bit fluid in our decision making as far as things like that go, especially with filters and stuff like that. You know, the, the filter the replacement interval on a lot of VWs now, 2015 and forward, it may actually be 2016 and forward, they get a little weird and I think it's a little bit far out there. So I would be looking at every 20K doing an air filter, engine air filter, a cabin pollen filter, a fuel filter, and of course you're gonna be doing an oil change at that 20K interval as well. The oil change interval on that car is 10,000 miles. To me, that's a little bit further of an interval than I really feel comfortable with. Yes, the oils can hold up. The filters, as long as you're using good quality filters, um, those are either man filters or there's another uh, French company that makes some of the VW filters. Uh, both of them are fine. Just make sure you're using good quality ones. Don't get like the cheap one from the auto parts store. Get a good quality oil filter, especially if you're going that 10,000 miles. If I owned one of these, I'd probably draw that way back to like 7,000 miles, maybe 5,000 miles, just because it makes me feel more comfortable. And I feel like, you know, that, that extra change is very cheap insurance you're burning up the road, so that may not be cost effective for you. That may negate some of the, uh, some of the benefits of diesel, uh, if you're doing that much maintenance that often. The other thing I've seen on these cars in particular, this, this Gen 3 TDI, is you need to make sure you're using the correct urea or correct, um, diesel exhaust fluid. There are specifications for diesel exhaust fluid, and I am by no means a diesel exhaust fluid expert, but I do know how to read the bottle and buy the one that it says it needs. Some of the cheap ones at the like Walmart or whatever, uh, some of the cheap ones don't meet the VW spec. You drive a Volkswagen, so everything has a spec to it, and I always recommend please use what the vehicle asks you to use. So just pay attention to that, even if you buy it at the dealership. Uh, it's not that expensive and you don't use that much of it. So, uh, there's, there's cheaper places to get it. I know. Just make sure it meets, I think it's a DIN spec, which would make sense being a German car. Make sure it meets that DIN spec. If you're not sure, you can look in your owner's book or just call the dealership and ask them what the spec is. It's right on the back of the bottle that, uh, that we used to fill cars up with. The other thing that VW left off of the maintenance schedule and when you understand why they did it, it makes a little more sense, but I can't help being a little bit skeptical, sorry, a lot of bit skeptical about why they actually did it. So they have no tire rotation interval. It used to be added on at our 10,000 mile services, which to me is a long time in between tire rotations. Michelin, you know, one of the top tier tire manufacturers recommends every 5,000 miles. And so that's what, when I worked at the dealer, what we were recommending to people. And usually, like, you can do it yourself in, you know, half hour if you have the stuff. Or we charged 20 bucks, and it got your car up in the air, and it got someone looking at it, and it got your fluids topped off. I think it was well worth $20 uh, just to not have to be crawling around on jack stands to simply rotate your tires. So you'll want to do that, I think, every 5,000 miles. It will help your tires last a bit longer, and they'll probably also ride better for that length of time. The reason I think they actually left it off is to start to fudge the overall cost of ownership numbers because you've dropped part of a service off. Now when you look at the, the comparison between 
like my wife's Tiguan in 2015 had that on there. Same exact car except the radio in 2016, and it didn't have it. Then what we started to see was comparisons of overall cost of ownership between the Tiguan and like the Honda CRV, and they start to come much closer together. So a little bit of conspiracy, but I don't know if that's really what happened or not. That's that's how I feel about it. But either way, every 5K, get the tires rotated. As far as pitfalls and things like that, you know, on the one hand, this is still a pretty new car. Most of these are not miled up very high because they either weren't purchased until more recently or they sat or they are still only three years old, really. So there's not a ton of them out there with, you know, 300,000 miles on them. So I don't know of like severe longevity problems. Um, there have been a couple of issues. There's an injector and a line for the AdBlue system right near the coolant bubble under the hood. And that was really good about leaking, and it starts to form this like white crystal mass over the top of it. You won't get a check engine light. You won't get any drivability concerns. You'll just open the hood and go, what the hell is that? It looks weird. We were putting lines on and a handful of injectors. The other good thing or the other bad thing, depending on how you want to look at it, at some point, this car is going to be going back again for stage two modification on 2015 model year cars. Uh, that's going to be a big replacement. That's going to be roughly 10 hours labor, which is a lot on, an, on a warranty claim. That's a lot of labor. So there at some point is going to be other replacements that are going to come along with the whole diesel nonsense that went on. So keep that in mind. The good thing about that, though, is I think the warranty extension is going to be enormous and uh, they're really taking care of people under uh, under warranty on that end. So that's a, a good thing. But man, the, the 15 golfs were pretty solid. The only issue other than the lines I'm, I'm thinking of now is we had one very early production diesel, like one of the first ones that we got. And the customer was complaining about the oil level increasing as he would drive. And what was happening is one of the fuel injectors was actually leaking diesel fuel into the oil, causing the oil level to rise. So um, that was a pretty easy fix. A little bit challenging of a diagnosis to actually duplicate, but uh, a pretty easy repair. On the oil level note, if you're doing your own maintenance, you need to make sure that you're not filling the oil to the very top of the dipstick. Oil dipsticks have a range. There's the min, the max, and then the middle. You want to get it in that lower third of the, the hash mark uh, area. Otherwise, what happens when the car gets hot and that level goes up because it expands you will find that your oil to full light will come on and create problems for you. Other than that, the car's really good. And as of right now today on, oh, I don't know, March 11 of 2018, there's not a widespread bunch of problems, but sometimes that does take a couple years to shake out. So David, great question. I hope that helps you out a little bit. Jack, TSP, thank you guys. Keep the questions coming. Hope you have an awesome weekend, and I will talk to you again next time. Great coverage by a guy that knows just a little bit about Volkswagens and Volkswagen diesels, Charles Sandville, the humble mechanic. Next, I have a question for choosing and locating your pond sites on your property for Jeff Lawton. Jeff, take it away, bro. I have a question here about um, building a dam, a pond, and whether to prioritize storing water high in the landscape or storing water lower. And um, the site has an abandoned irrigation ditch running in um, through um, through it, that is, fed by 20 acres of catchment. Uh, the ditch flows 
in the spring for about a week. The ditch runs through a flat part of the property. It's roughly level in zones one and three. Above the ditch, um, there's, three acre, uh, there's three acres of hillside. Um, if we start a swell and pond at the lowest point of the boundary, at the highest, the lowest point on the highest boundary, which is usually the longest, highest contour line, the catchment's only one and a half acres and would be elevated 25 feet above one and three. Um, the person who's asking the question uh, took my online PDC three years ago and they know the principle of water high as possible in the landscape stores energy and low as possible for life. Um, but does this irrigation ditch that brings in as much water through the site change the principle? Well, um, I would have started this question with it depends, but because they've taken the course with me, they've filled in the details. As most um, permaculture answers to questions start with it depends, but they've said they're on a budget and then and they can only do one pond and swell and then the next one may have to wait a few years. Um, would they put a low pond in or a high pond? And they're on five acres, so it's not a big site in South Dakota. So they got 20, what have we got? 25 feet in height in difference. So that's quite a lot of height in five acres, really. Um, and um, they're in zone four with 13 inches of rain. They're in South Dakota. Most of that precipitation is snow, it's grassland. And here's, here's the cruncher. Um, our purpose of the pond is livestock watering, fish and pasture irrigation. Well, if you want a decent fish pond, the lower pond's definitely going to be the one to go for because it's going to be the largest one and it may give you more storage of water over the year if it's a bit, um, if you're short of water. Definitely the, the high pond will give you irrigation pressure much better, of course, but if you're after fish, the lower pond's going to give you a bigger fish stock. Um, livestock don't need pressure water. It can be quite slow flow to drink troughs. So it doesn't matter there. And if you're in South Dakota, you're going to get plenty of wind because you're in the open country, I expect. Your grassland, your open country. So you can pump from that larger pond up to a header tank and give yourself irrigation. So you've got a budget. Ideally, you go for both. Ideally, you get the swell and the dam up the top and the swell and the dam at the bottom. And you get, you get soakage irrigation coming through your swell all the way down and a secondary set at the bottom. So see if you can do that. See if, and it's probably cheap, may even be cheaper than a tank to put a little dam at the top. Swells are very cheap and, and small dams aren't that expensive. May even equal what it takes to put a tank up there. But I would still go for the bottom pond as a priority considering what you want to do and put a windmill on it to jack water uphill with free energy there. Um, it'll work well. You'll get your fish. You'll get your 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 pasture irrigation. Uh, well, you'll get your livestock, but your pasture irrigation will be something you won't be able to pressure water easily from the lower dam. You may have to put a pump on it unless you can use that windmill to jack water up to head pressure and get it from the head pressure. But uh, there you go. You're on the right track. Um, sounds like it's going to turn out good. Yeah, I'll just add a little bit, kind of what Jeff was saying, that if you can do both, do both in a single trip. Here's why. 
a lot of times people think, well, it's going to be a lot more expensive to do more earthworks in a single uh, setting. However, especially a smaller pond, smaller swell system, it's actually a really quick job. And if you decide to do that upper pond later, it will cost more in the what you'd call your, your truck roll to get that piece of equipment out there than it probably will for the actual work. So while it may cost more to do both than to do one now, the total cost will be lower if you do both. That said, um, if, you, if it just doesn't work, if it just doesn't work, I, I agree with Jeff, I would put priority on the lower pond because you have so much more catchment and you're going to get so much more use out of it. And, and ponds have value beyond just doing things like Irrigation and what have you, and 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 there is a uh, aesthetic value to ponds. There is a and, and the reality is, even though you probably plan on being here for the rest of your life, I always talk about exit strategies with real estate, and it's always a good thing to keep your real estate as liquid as possible. And a larger pond in a lower part of the valley, to the most amount of buyers, will be more valuable. To us, we understand the value of holding water high in the landscape. Most people just want water. They don't care where it is. And I would also say that sometimes small ponds on elevated ground actually can be quite expensive and quite tricky. So 25 feet is, is quite a drop, and that's good for pressure, but the pond site up there, you have to really look at that. And it may need to be quite a bit of a smaller pond than, than you'd expect. You really need to look at the ground. So my instinct is you can build a much much bigger pond low down for less money than a smaller pond up high. Uh, so, it, again, I'm with Jeff. If you have to pick between the two, even though we like to hold water high in the landscape, my gut gravitates toward the lower uh, pond site that you have. Next up, we have a question for uh, holding, trading, and investing in cryptocurrency inside a retirement account for John Pugliano. Hello, TSP listeners. Today, our financial question is about investing in cryptocurrencies within your traditional IRA or Roth-type uh, investment account, retirement investment account. Now, this is a popular topic. Um, I've received many questions from the TSP listeners as well as questions from, you know, other people from my podcast. And so in today's little segment, I'm not going to address any one question. I'm just going to try and throw them all together under the big category of how can the average person invest in cryptocurrency through a traditional IRA account that they may have at Schwab or Fidelity or Vanguard or you know, E-Trade? Just the regular old run-of-the-mill traditional Roth IRA or individual IRA retirement account that most people have. Now, with Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies in general having so much attention over the past couple of years and, you know, the fact that, that Bitcoin is, uh, I guess, about a decade old, you would think that there would be a lot of opportunities to invest in Bitcoin through your traditional retirement accounts. But that's not the case, and that's why so many people are asking the question. Really, the only way that you could use your traditional IRA or Roth to invest in some type of cryptocurrency has been the Greystone Bitcoin Investment Trust. That's ticker symbol GBTC. This trades on the over-the-counter market, much like an exchange-traded fund, with one big difference, and that's that this fund is set up as a trust 
where the overall net asset value of all the shares being traded don't necessarily have to add up and equal to the underlying amount of Bitcoin that's owned by the fund. What that basically means is, is that although the Bitcoin Investment Trust will generally correlate with Bitcoin, it can do so at really wide extremes. It can either be way overpriced from the value of Bitcoin, or it can trade at a steep discount to Bitcoin. Now, six or seven months ago, when the price of Bitcoin was really skyrocketing, that worked in investors' favor. A lot of people wanted to jump into Bitcoin. This was an easy way for people to do it, particularly in their IRAs. And so investors were willing to pay a premium to own the Bitcoin Investment Trust. And so therefore, the net asset value of the fund you know, had, had exceeded the price of uh, the Bitcoin it owned by over 50% in many cases. Now, my big concern about this premium paid for GBTC is that I don't think that's going to last forever. I mean, the reason that they have that pricing power now is really they're the only game in town. And as we see these newer and innovative products coming online... There won't be that demand premium for the Bitcoin Investment Trust. And so I think you'll see that premium evaporate. There's some other issues I have with this. The fact that it's not traded on the major exchanges means that it just doesn't have the liquidity of other higher quality funds. If you pull up a chart of Bitcoin and compare it to GBTC, you can see back in early March when Bitcoin was up, oh, maybe as much as, uh, say, 12% over a two-week period in early March, at that same time, the Bitcoin Investment Trust was down as much as 6%. And so for those reasons, I personally wouldn't be investing in the Bitcoin Investment Trust. Well, what about other options? Well, you've probably heard that over the last month or so, TD Ameritrade is allowing retail investors to sign up and trade Bitcoin futures on the Chicago Commodities Exchange. And so people have been saying, hey, you know, I've got a TD Ameritrade account. Can I trade that in my Roth IRA? Well, let's dig down to the details. Number one, you have to have at least $25,000 in your account. That's going to be prohibitive to many people. But the bigger problem with this is that the futures trading are set up as tier two options. And the bottom line on what that means is, is that I don't know of any retail traditional Roth or IRA account that will allow you to trade tier two options. In all the retirement accounts that I'm familiar with, the highest level of options you can trade are Tier 1, and that's basically protective puts or covered calls. Well, that prohibits using it in a traditional retirement account. Okay, well, what about other options? Well, in recent weeks, there's been a lot of news about cryptocurrency index funds. Coinbase has announced that in, in the coming weeks or months, they're going to be launching their own fund. Greystone, the same people that launched the Bitcoin Investment Trust. They already have a fund out there that invests in a basket of cryptocurrencies. So what about that? Can you buy that in your Roth IRA? Well, maybe. As far as Coinbase, they haven't launched their fund yet, so the information there is still pretty sketchy. But the people over at Grayscale that have launched their fund, that is definitely something that can be purchased in an IRA or in a Roth, just like the Bitcoin Investment Trust. But when you dig down into the details... I see a lot of the same problems that they have over with their Bitcoin investment trust product and then even more on top of that. A big issue is just like the Bitcoin investment trust, the underlying value of this index is not necessarily correlated to the overall summation of the value that's being held in all the underlying cryptocurrencies. And so once again, there can either be a large premium 
or a large discount to the real value of the underlying cryptocurrencies that are, that are being held in the basket. The other problems with these cryptocurrency index funds is that they're expensive to administer, and so they're going to charge higher than normal fees, and they're not going to just open these up to anybody. This new product from Grayscale, I see that they have a $50,000 minimum, and the even bigger problem is that they're only going to offer this to accredited investors. An accredited investor is someone that has a million dollars of investable assets. That means that's a million dollars, not counting the value of the primary residence or home that you live in. Or it's a high income earner, which would be an individual that makes over $200,000 or a working couple that has a household income of over $300,000. And so by putting that type of restriction on it, you're basically restricting participation in a fund like this to, you know, maybe 5% of the population. And as I read over it at the Coinbase website, they're saying the same thing about their future index fund. You're going to have to be an accredited investor to get into it. Okay, and so by now you're probably saying, well, John, you're being a really Debbie Downer. What about all those advertisements I see that talk about Bitcoin IRAs? In fact, there's a specific company whose name is Bitcoin IRA. Well, again, ignore the marketing and dig down and look at the details, read the fine print. If you were to open up an IRA with them and roll over your account and you rolled over a $100,000 account, my understanding is, is that they're going to charge you more than a 10% initial setup fee. So right off the bat, you're talking about something in excess of $10,000 just to open up the account. So I don't know the particulars, but I think the bottom line with that specific company is really what they're doing is they're just setting you up with a self-directed IRA and they're charging that huge premium as a fee to set it up. And so really that's where I want to segue into the last part of this discussion. Really the only advantageous way I see to invest in cryptocurrency in a retirement account is to set up your own standalone self-directed IRA or if you're a business owner, you can set up your own self-directed individual or solo 401k. Now, this is not what you're going to open up if you just go down to E-Trade and open up a traditional IRA. These are plans that are very cumbersome to set up. You either find a custodian that's willing to work with alternative investments or you set up your own LLC and you, you basically administer it yourself. But the big limiting factor of these self-directed retirement accounts is that they're expensive to set up and to maintain. Well, hey, that's my opinion. Jack, you're the cryptocurrency expert. Why don't you chime in and tell us what you think? As always, thank you for the questions. For the expert counsel, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth. Right, next up, we have kind of an interesting question, a question on rating the performance of a local police department for Dan Omen, our former law enforcement officer. Dan, take it away. Bad boys, bad boys, what you gonna do? What you gonna do when they come for you? Hey everyone, this is Dan Omen answering questions on law enforcement related matters. Today I have a question from Andy. Andy wants to know, how can someone go about rating their local police department? A rating system being either they're good or they're bad. And bad would be lots of asset forfeiture, significant amounts of racism, unnecessary police brutality. In the details, Andy writes, if I knew that my local police or sheriff was in the bad category, then I'd take some extra precautions about interacting with police and 
I'd probably spend more time trying to help friends avoid police and just generally be a bit more cautious. If I knew they were pretty good, then I'd be more inclined to do things in support of the department, find out if they've got citizen in their action programs, speak up in support of their good policies, etc. Andy, I don't have the most perfect answer for you on this. However, I do have several points, several different things that you can look at in kind of making an overall assessment about a police department. And the first thing to look for is what's known as a CALEA accreditation. CALEA is the Commission on Accreditation for Law Enforcement Agencies. It's a national law enforcement certification program. So if a police department wants to be CALEA certified, if they want to get their accreditation, then they need to follow a lot of rules and have a lot of certain policies in place. And this is policies on everything from evidence storage to internal affairs to record maintenance. It's all kinds of stuff. Getting a CALEA accreditation is basically a really big feather in the cap of the police department. It's a real big indicator of professional management of a department. There's a really super detailed inspection every three years. These inspectors come in and really put the police department through a fine-tooth comb. They basically do an audit on practically everything going on in the police department. So it's super thorough, and it's really expensive. This is something that used to kind of bug me when I worked at the police department, when I found out how much the accreditation cost is, or at least it was back then. It was $40,000 to have this accreditation process take place. As a taxpayer, that bothered me because it was forty grand just to have this accreditation, which was a seal, a logo that goes on your letterhead, and a decal on all the patrol cars indicating that you have this accreditation. But in a case like this, it's beneficial to the citizen like you, Andy, who's trying to determine, is this a professional police department or not? And the CALEA certification goes a long way in providing some confidence to the citizen that, yes, this is a professional police department. Another thing to look at here is community policing. Does the police department have a community policing program? Many metro area police departments have that now. Sheboyganville probably isn't going to have it, but most police departments and sheriff's offices in larger metro areas are going to have these community policing programs. The way ours worked was officers would volunteer to be in this community policing program, and an officer would get assigned to a certain beat within a zone, and they would always work that same area. So they would be familiar with store owners in certain areas, residents. They'd be familiar with different patterns going on in neighborhoods, so you don't have different police officers working different areas all the time and unfamiliar with what is normal for a certain area. And then once a month or once a quarter, there'd be town hall meetings for each of these areas. So officers assigned to the certain beat would go to the town hall meetings and be available to answer any questions that citizens may have. The police department would also do presentations to the citizens at these town hall meetings, let them know what's going on. Um, A lot of times it was different hot issues going on in a certain neighborhood, or it could be crime stats, how many arrests were made in a certain area, just basically disclosing a lot of this information to the citizens and just being generally available to answer any questions or concerns that come up. So a really good way to evaluate the police department is go to one of these community policing town hall meetings, show up, ask questions, and hear them out, listen to what they have to say, and that's going to go a long way in making your determination. Another thing to look at 
our community outreach programs. Our police department also had community outreach, and this is where officers would go to speak to churches, HOAs, assisted living homes, uh, civic groups of any kind. Basically, if you're any kind of organized group, you can request a police officer to come out and talk about appropriate topics depending on whatever your group is. For example, I've done some talks on stranger danger, burglary risk mitigation, basically making your house a hard target, uh, letting people know about different scams that are going on in the area, flim-flam artists. Other topics could include cybersecurity, firearm safety, etc., etc. So if you belong to any kind of group or organization and think there's a relevant topic that you can have the police come out and talk to your group about, chances are if especially if they have a community policing and outreach program, they're going to be able to send an officer out and do their community outreach, talk about these different topics. And again, this increases positive interaction with the police and gives you an opportunity to get to know them and them to know you. And then there's the Citizens Police Academy. My police department also had this program, and people absolutely loved this program. It's a program where citizens came to the police department for one evening out of the week for 12 weeks long, and it's complete citizen immersion into police programs. So one week might be all about working with the canines. Another week would be talking about narcotic interdictions and how the different narcotic programs work. There would be a week on detectives where the citizens would learn about interview interrogations. They'd come see our interview rooms. They'd learn about crime scene processing, fingerprint identification, traffic enforcement, firearms training. Basically, every aspect of policing, they're coming in and getting a really thorough introduction and education into these different programs, and all the while interacting with the officers that serve in these various capacities. Another program our police department did was a volunteer program. So people would actually go through a pretty thorough background investigation like they were going to be an employee at the police department. But once they'd get into the program, they had really a lot of access at the police department. They would answer phone calls at the front desk, do case file organization, uh, low-priority case follow-up phone calls. A lot of these volunteers who had the police department were doing a lot of these smaller tasks that you don't necessarily need to have a law enforcement certification in as far as you know, taking calls at the front desk and such like that. And volunteering in these programs where you could come to the police department and do two, three, four, five hours, whatever it might be, once a week or once every two weeks, this gives you an opportunity to actually work with other members at the police department. So you're getting a real insider's perspective doing an evaluation on the police department. Does it fall under a good police department or bad police department based on your criteria? And lastly, Andy, our ride-along programs. I don't know if a lot of police departments are still doing this. I think our police department was starting to turn away from doing that unless you were in the Citizens Police Academy program or a volunteer but they used to have a program where you could just show up at the police department, fill out a waiver form, and then schedule a time to go ride along with a police officer. Generally, they'd only do it during day shift hours, so you weren't working an overnight shift where things were generally a little more dangerous. But you would just ride along for an entire shift with a police officer. If that is still something available at police departments near you, that is something that I highly encourage you to check out because you're going to be in the police car with the police officer, hearing the radio traffic, hearing what the calls are, going to the calls, and that way you'll get a lot of insight into 
into the policing practices and what's going on in general out on the streets around your police department. Andy, I know in the details you said you'd be more inclined to interact with them if you knew they were good. However, I think the best approach is to go into the police department and start interacting with them and then make your determination because it's going to be really hard to make that determination without that interaction. Thanks for that question, Annie. Keep sending them in, guys. And if you want to learn more about me and what I'm doing now in life after law enforcement, head on over to grassfedhomestead.com, and you can check out our videos and blog posts there uh, if you're interested in learning more about using permaculture to produce some of your own food on your homestead. So I have a couple thoughts on this as well. I, I actually think there is... Legs in the idea of some sort of a review site for individual officers and their departments. The the problem, the thing that would need to be skinned with that is some level of legitimacy. Because there are people that just hate cops and would make shit up. There are people that think that the fact that they got a speeding ticket to a 75 and a 45 is wrong, uh, even if they were doing it down a neighborhood street where children play. And even if, if you really don't think that cops should be out riding speeding tickets per se, it is reasonable for a police officer in that situation to write a ticket. It is, it is what is expected of them as their duty. So there'd have to be some sort of, I don't know, control mechanism. Like, you know, on, on Amazon with the Amazon reviews, we have the concept of the verified purchase. Not only does this person review this, But Amazon, through their records, know that this was a verified purchase. So there's some sort of verified contact mechanism. Plus, with Amazon, we, you know, I, when I'm looking at researching products, I always check a, a site called FakeSpot, which has been built on algorithms to detect gaming the system. So if you had some kind of a system that had like a third-party authentication algorithm that, that basically said, you know, this police department has an A-grade um and it's it's got an A grade for for validity, then you would have a much stronger case than saying oh, this this department has an A grade, but an F for validity, or vice versa. They have an F grade uh, for for quality, but an uh, an A grade for validity. That's that 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 means they probably do suck. But if they had an F grade for um, for performance and also an F grade for validity, then you you got people gaming the system. And I, I don't really know how you would work that out. I did find there are sites that do this for teachers and school districts, and I, I was excited when I first found this out, and when I looked into it, it was clearly mostly students are pissed off because they got an F. And that's not really an indicator that the teacher didn't do their job well. Uh, the reason I would like something like this is it's one thing to make a decision about whether or not you get involved with helping the police departments or not, or you know, let, let's say what side you take on that, as bad as that sounds. But what's more important would be, well, where do I live? See, this is a reality. The fundamental reality is every governmental department is driven by a tax base. And that tax base, one way or another, is directly proportional to do people decide to live there or do people decide to live somewhere else? And if people were making a decision on which neighborhood to live in, and it included like things that people typically look at, like what are the schools like? That's something people look at. Uh, what are the amenities that are available in the area? What are the property taxes, etc.? But if people actually were including not just what is the crime rate, but what is the law enforcement rating from the community? What does the community think of the law enforcement organization in their area? 
That might actually speak louder than anything else because when people are deciding, I'm going to go build my house over here because this department is corrupt, and that department derives a huge portion of its revenue that it uses to fund its operations from property taxes, all of a sudden we have people's attention. And we also have the attention of the other politicians that have some influence over how that department handles things. Because they also require that tax base to be able to do the things that they want to do. And now we start to have leverage and push points. Another suggestion is just letting police departments know what's going on. I am good, uh, hell of an advocate for cops doing the right thing, and I'm pretty hard on ones doing the wrong thing. And I mentioned on the air, you know, in the past, you've heard me mention this little town of Lakeside, but the damn whole town is run like a giant HOA with some of the stupid regulations they have. But one of my biggest complaints is they have so many daggone cops for a town of 1,300 people. It seems ridiculous the number of officers they have. And they were the most parasitic, speed-trap-running cops I've ever seen in my life. I really feel that they were. Right about the time of the, the very unfortunate tragedy with the shooting of police officers in Dallas, Texas, during the Black Lives Matter march, it wasn't long after. It wasn't like the next day or something. It was only a few weeks. Somebody on next door posted, they're really thankful for our local police department in Lakeside. And I'm sorry, I couldn't resist. I said, I'm not thankful for people that do nothing that I can see other than run speed traps uh, and constantly pull people over in an area where the road is very wide, very flat, very long. There's no real danger, and the speed limit is 45 miles an hour, and they're knocking people down for doing 45 to 55 miles an hour uh, as they're coming down a hill. And they're just basically predators in this capacity. And they're primarily nailing people that are coming through this road. They're not familiar with the area. And it seems like they would do better policing the neighborhood streets where children play than plucking people left and right. And I got a lot of people attacking me, and you must be bitter because you got a ticket or whatever. And I'm like, no, I'm the guy on the big giant F-350 with the dirt in the back with the cruise control set at 44 miles an hour all the way through there. You guys blow the horn at because I won't speed through there because I'm not getting a damn ticket. And I got attacked as being a cop hater, and I came back and said, hey, look, you know, I've got multiple people in my family that are police officers. I've talked to police officers about this type of thing. The best officers I know, when they're told to write more tickets, do exactly what I say. They look for places where lives are actually being placed in danger, where children are playing. Speed limits are like 25 miles or to protect children. And you got idiots running through there at 50. That seems like a much better use of police time, et cetera. The chief of police for Lakeside came on there and made a, a comment that I really wasn't sure about. But let me tell you what happened. Within a week, I stopped seeing this constant parasitic approach to law enforcement. I have not seen it return. I'm not saying that it won't. I still use some caution driving through the area. I don't really want to go flying through there at 90 miles an hour or anything like that anyway. But it went from seeing, every time I went down that road, two to three officers running radar to very rarely seeing it at all. And what it seems like to me is that chief must be checking in on next door because people will say things like, there's this one place where they're doing construction and that's really dangerous and I almost got, I almost got hit with my kids there today. And all of a sudden, officers show up. Sometimes just pointing out the problems, if it's done professionally, especially if it's not done, and see, that wasn't a direct accusation. I didn't say this chief's, I don't even know the guy's name. I even pointed out, I don't live in Lakeside. I live out here where the sheriff's police things, 
We don't have any problems, and we really support our sheriff deputies because they're not doing things like this. They're actually out looking out after us for the things that are actually creating a danger for people. And I think that man must be a good man. And he looked at that and asked himself if this was really the way he wanted to be running his department. Because it seemed to, and it might be coincidence, but it seemed to have changed at exactly that note. And somebody else lauded in about what the budget line item was for citations on the city's website. And it was like a million dollars in citation revenue, which means they have to write about $3 million in citations. Okay, because they only get about a third of the revenue. The other two-thirds goes to various parts of the other parts of the state and county government. So I, I feel like when you have good people doing a job that maybe are just doing it wrong, if it's presented the right way, that maybe you get a change. The other thing that I would say in dealing with law enforcement is never miss the opportunity to have a positive conversation with a law enforcement officer. And in general, it always makes sense to take their card. I have a stack of law enforcement officer business cards. And I make note of people and where they work and what their names are. And when I talk to another cop, I, if there's a guy, I'll be like, well, do you know, you know, deputy so-and-so? He was a friend of the family back in, you know, whatever. And generally speaking, they do know the other officers. And that gets them to lower their guard and tell you more about, you know, themselves. And that gives you a better feeling for the men. Because the men are more important than the department. The men and who they are and what they're all about. As you guys know, recently my, my farmhand made a dumbass decision and put you know three-quarters of a tank of gasoline in a diesel truck and got stranded in the middle of Silver Creek Road, which is a disaster, on a rush hour out of Friday. A uh, Tarrant County constable uh, came by and pushed him off the road and waited with him until I got there. He was an older gentleman. I could tell he probably retired from other something else, and he's you know the constables have a pretty laid-back position here. Uh, and uh, I, I talked to him, and I got his business card. I mentioned a uh, uh, sheriff's deputy that works in my area that I'm, I'm you know, close to through family relationships. And then there's another contact, and it gave me an insight. And I said, I asked him, I said, can you explain to me the difference between, because I know you're under the sheriff, what is the difference between what the sheriff's deputies do and what the constables do? I, I knew full, full well the answer, but it let him tell me, and that let me listen to him, and that gave me another contact. And I think that it's it's valuable, even if you have a negative opinion of many aspects of law enforcement, that we have these contacts and relationships with the individuals. Because most of the individuals that I've developed that contact with seem like solid men and women. And again, when you have the relationship, a lot of times that is very beneficial in the future. It also allows you to do things like something's going on, You, you don't really want to dial 911 about it. You can talk to an individual who you know covers the area and say, hey, this is what's, and they want that relationship. They're, they're looking for that type of relationship. And it is highly likely to avoid confusions and misunderstandings. You're, you're not likely to be the person that gets their door kicked in because a tip came in and gave, you know, Avenue instead of Street when they know who you are and what you're all about. So those are my thoughts on that. Kind of a long extra segment, but. Just some thoughts. Next, I have a, uh, a question for Nick Ferguson on troubleshooting pairs and a special announcement for Mr. Ferguson as well. 
Hey there, Nick Ferguson here from HomegrownLiberty.com, where my goal is to help you avoid problems in learning how to build resilient homesteads and agricultural systems. And this week, I have a question from Trevor asking about some problems he's having with some pears. But I wanted to let you guys know first, before we get into that answer, that I'm doing a bunch of consulting in the upcoming weeks. So if you're wanting to get in on one of my consulting tours at... Around half of what it normally costs, shoot me an email to nick at homegrownliberty.com and we can get you on the consulting tour. I'm going to be all over the south, probably up into Kentucky, maybe as far as Illinois. So if you're in any of those states, of course, I live in Louisiana. I'll be in Texas, probably Oklahoma, Missouri, Arkansas, Kentucky, Tennessee, Alabama, Mississippi, all over the place. Um, so if you're anywhere around there and you're interested in that, I will be in your neck of the woods, and that'll save you a lot to get me on one of those consulting tours. All right, so his email reads, um, my name is Trevor. I'm in North Louisiana. Hey, so am I. And I have a question about ripeness of pears on my pear trees. I have a couple of three- to four-year-old pear trees and a couple of approximately two-year-old pear trees among my other fruit tree varieties. The last couple of years, I've had decent fruiting on my young trees, but every time we've picked the pears and cut into them, they taste like biting into a stick. No pear flavor. I've left some on longer than others and left some out to ripen off the tree after picking and get the same results. I throw table scraps such as fruit peelings, bones, veggie scraps, coffee grounds, etc. all around my trees every day or so. I don't think fertility is the issue as I don't have any problems with any of the other fruit I've grown. Peaches, strawberries, apples, blackberries. Any advice? Thanks. Love the work you do. Respectfully, Trevor. All right. I emailed Trevor to get some more info. And after a couple emails back and forth, I think I have figured out what the main issue seems to be. And... uh. Trevor, you're probably not going to like the answer. Um, The quick and short answer, Trevor, is that you have an Asian pear hybrid that is just known for being hard, crunchy, with a slight sweetness and very little flavor. It's a cultivar of pear called Orient, he told me. And according to Texas A&M, it's a hybrid between a European-French cultivar and an Asian pear made by Walter Van Fleet of Chico, California, prior to 1925, and it was introduced to the Tennessee Ag Experiment Station and the USDA in 1945. So it's an old cultivar. Um, So let's talk about some of the positive characteristics of this particular cultivar. It's easy to train into a good shape. It's a regular bearer of uniform and excellent shaped fruit. It has good-sized fruit. The flesh of the fruit uh, is a very nice white. It's firm supposedly juicy and has a slight sweetness. It has a low chill requirement, which is good for the South, with chill hours as low as 350 hours below 45 degrees. So you should probably always have fruit off of it. It needs a pollinator like a Bartlett, and it is blight resistant. And that is one of the biggest things with pears in the South is fire blight resistance. So the drawbacks to this cultivar, as you found, um, it's reported to be very firm and crunchy, Only a slight sweetness. So if you're comparing this to a typical Bartlett pear that, you know, has that soft as butter uh, with that sugary, sweet, traditional pear flavor explosion, well, this 
will taste like a stick in comparison. So if you pick this fruit before it's completely ripe, it'll probably be almost inedible and completely tasteless. It's best suited to cooking and making something like preserves. It's also great for wildlife plots because of its relatively low maintenance and disease resistance. So to be honest, man, I don't think you're doing anything wrong. You might let the fruit stay on the tree till after those first good cold nights towards the end of October. I mean, if it'll stay on the tree that long, just see how long it'll stay on the tree and pick them just really late. Generally, that cold weather, that cold, those cold temperatures will help pears soften up and get some more good flavor. So if you do that, you'll know that it's a nice ripe pear and try them that way and you know, the other thing is you may just need to change your expectations to suit the reality of the tree you have growing. It's going to be a hard, crunchy pear with a mild honey or honeydew melon flavor and only a slight sweetness, and it's just going to be hard and crunchy. If you want a good pear for Louisiana with more of that pear flavor and that sweetness, check out Ayers, Seckle, and Maxine. And honestly, what I would probably do is if you really don't like it, Try, you know, cutting it back this upcoming winter, letting it uh, sucker out and grow. Um, it's too late to graft. But what you could do is, you know, prepare it this year for upcoming grafting next year. And you could just get some um, some cyan wood from some other pear cultivars and just pop a whole bunch of pear cultivars on there. Make sure you tag each one of the grafts so you know what it is and so you don't end up pruning it off in the future. Um, so you could keep the same trees in place and have new cultivars fruiting on it by just grafting on there, and pears are super easy to graft. So if you really just hate those pears and you want something different, I would first start with grafting, and then if that didn't work, then just replace the trees. All right, guys, you can email me a question directly to nick at homegrownliberty.com. And again, don't forget about my upcoming consulting tours. I'll be headed all over the southern U.S. and even into northern states as well. That's all I've got time for. You guys have a good one. Do good things. Great stuff from Nick Ferguson on his uh, consulting tour. If you have been looking to have someone come to your property and help you figure out what you want to do, This is a good opportunity to do that because it will definitely cost you less to make it part of a road trip he's taken than to have him individually come out to your site and go directly back home. So it will be more cost-effective and more information about that consulting tour will be coming uh, soon from Nick. I'll have a, like a more detailed announcement about it on Monday for you. But if you're interested in that, especially if you're anywhere in the states that he mentioned, um, get on over to homegrownliberty.com, get in touch with Nick, and you know get, get in line early so that you, uh, you can partake of his advice, which is well worth every cent you'll ever pay on it. Next, I have a question for cryptocurrency expert Benjamin Fitz on the concept of proof of stake. Hey Jack and Survival Podcast listeners, this is Ben Fitz with Crypto Gulch, and in today's Expert Council question, we have a question on cryptocurrency, which comes to us from Mike in Boise, Idaho. Mike says, can you provide a basic overview of what proof of stake means? It's easy to wrap my brain around what proof of work is. Unfortunately, most explanations out there for a proof of stake are very high level. Can you provide a somewhat dumbed down version? 
and if you have time, what Casper means to those who are getting into mining crypto, whether solo or through a service like Crypto Gulch. Thank you both for all you do, Mike. All right, Mike, that's a good question. So real quickly, I've got to talk about proof of work, even though, Mike, you know what it is. Um, proof of work is how Bitcoin basically verifies transactions. It requires computers to do some mathematical computations and they share the computations back with the decentralized servers that run the blockchain. And this is what prevents someone from doing something like a double spend where I send money to someone that I've already sent to someone else. It helps to verify all of that and proof of work is intended to require a lot of system resources so that no one person can control enough resources to forge the information. And so mining, and sometimes we talk about 51% attacks in mining, that comes when one organization is 51% or more of all the work. And... If that becomes the case, there is a potential for an attack on the network. And so we try to decentralize our mining across a variety of different pools so that no one organization or pool controls 51% of the work. Proof of stake was created as a way to minimize the amount of work because sometimes you hear that Bitcoin mining takes as much energy as a small country. So proof of stake is the idea that you stake some of your coins as your proof. And instead of getting paid back mining, you get paid back some reward on your stake. Some coins it is an interest payment. Some coins it is every time you vote or something like that, there are different mechanisms for proof of stake. One of the things we need to talk about is that proof of work has been around since roughly 1999. Even though Bitcoin's only been around since 2009, they were actually creating proof of work to help with things like spam. And so the Bitcoin algorithm came out in 2009 and they, they modified it and they made it really good. And so far, it's proven to be very sound. The amount of work required to create one Bitcoin in part is actually what relates to the price of Bitcoin. When there's only one Bitcoin left and you have tens of thousands of computers competing to create that one Bitcoin, what do you think that Bitcoin is going to be worth? The amount of money and time and resources spent to create that Bitcoin is going to be make the that Bitcoin very valuable. So, that's one of the things about proof of work, but at the same time, proof of work requires people to, you know, have these specialized computer operations like we have here at Crypto Gulch. They require you to use a lot of power and energy. Some people are concerned about the environment. You know, I saw John McAfee speak this weekend and he was said, you know, who cares? Because smart people will come up with ways to make the energy usage better. And it will just give people an incentive to, you know, to improve 
whether or not they're improving our energy or whether or not they're improving how crypto mining works, you know, the, the more of this that we use, the more people will actually be incentivized to fix the problem. So proof of stake is one of those incentives to try and fix the problem. You are paid back some reward for staking a certain amount of your coins. And there are different types of proof of work, proof of stake out there. Um, there's the system like Dash uses with, with master nodes and you need to put a thousand Dash into a master node and, um, that earns interest rather than, um, mining. Uh, Zencash uses something similar except for they have sort of a hybrid system where they have miners and they also have the secure nodes. I guess actually Dash is a hybrid system too. Um, that's kind of becoming a common thing is the hybrid systems. Um, so you have with Zencash, you only need to put 42 Zen in a node instead of a thousand and they're worth a lot less. So you can get started for much cheaper. So Zencash has a lot more nodes out there than Dash does. But keep in mind with those, you actually need to have some sort of, um, server to run them on. And that's an additional requirement that some people are not able to do. Um, other coins like Decred, they have a staking mechanism, which is like a vote mechanism. And you stake your coins until you're called on to vote. And you may be voting for, you know, the future of Decred, you know, uh, and, and you may be voting for whether or not to fork or something like that. And, and at that time that your vote happens is when you get paid your reward. So the rest of the time your Decred is locked up, you're not getting paid. Um, other types of staking are like the wallet. You just stake some coins in your wallet and you get paid interest. And you may have to keep your wallet open or something, or maybe you don't even have to keep your wallet open. Usually you have to keep your wallet open or um, you have to respond to challenge response or something. Um, some way of verifying that your stake is still active. Um, I will say this about proof of stake. There are a lot of creative ideas out there and a lot of them are untested. You know, um, proof of work's been around since 99. Bitcoin has been around since 2009. A lot of these proof of works or proof of stake systems are brand new. And when you're talking about billions of dollars, it's an opportunity for hackers to possibly hack them. So I would not invest a lot of money into a new coin using a new proof of stake algorithm until it had been thoroughly tested. I might take a flyer and I might invest a small percentage of my coin into that new startup because I think it might be a good idea, but I wouldn't want to invest a lot because I would be afraid that they don't have the math right, that they don't have the science right, that they don't have the technology right, and that they can be easily hacked. Even systems like Dash or you know, these systems, Dash hasn't been around that long either. And someday we could find that there's a fatal flaw. You know, once the really smart guys start applying themselves to these things, um, we may find that some of this doesn't work as expected. 
The final part of your question was, what is Casper? Casper is Ethereum's, I guess, code word or version for their proof of stake. Ethereum has always been proof of work initially, but their goal has always been to transition to proof of stake. It remains to be seen whether or not they'll move to full proof of stake, that's what's been talked about, or a hybrid proof of stake. It seems like Vitalik lately has talked about some hybrid proof of stake models, but maybe that's not for Ethereum. Um, Casper and the Ethereum proof of stake is supposed to have been around, uh, they were supposed to have launched it at least in 2017, and it might have been the end of 2016 they were supposed to have launched it. It's been a while, and they keep putting it off. They keep postponing it, and they've made changes to, because they weren't expecting to still be mining Ethereum, so they've made changes to the amount of rewards that are given out for mining Ethereum, and they've gotten smaller, so that way they don't add too much inflation and add too many extra coins, and they may do that again because they haven't decided to move to proof of stake yet. We don't have a date for when that's going to be. They will want to test it and make sure it's thoroughly tested and vetted before they launch it. So it could potentially change the things for miners. You know, we might not be able to mine Ethereum anymore. If they move to a pure proof of stake, we may end up mining something else. But as they don't even have a date for it yet, and as they have postponed it for over a year already, I think that we've got at least another year of postponing it and maybe longer before they decide to launch it. Again, thank you for the great questions. I appreciate that. Um, I love doing the expert counsel. Thank you, Mike, for your question, and thank you, Jack, for the opportunity. Have a great day, everybody. On the long-term horizon, here's my view. You got you got Betamax and VHS, and and I, I think one of them will win out as the dominant way that things are done going into the future. And I don't know which one it's going to be. They both have some very strong things going for them, but I I do believe it's going to be the proof of work concept that that gets used more by companies that want to develop blockchain solutions. Uh, that aren't necessarily just another token or another coin to go out on an exchange and be used as money. Because it it makes a lot of sense. And there, I, I can think of a ton of different ways, and maybe someday I'll do a show just on what we could do with blockchain. Um, one of the reasons I'm so jazzed up about ARK, and, and remember, when I'm saying I like proof of stake for certain things, it doesn't mean I have uh, a negative opinion of proof of work. Uh, I have a lot invested with Ben in gear that is currently mining using proof of work for me at Crypto Gulch. And I will continue to reinvestment, reinvest uh, any referrals I get as, as a Crypto Gulch affiliate back into that equipment. So it's not a negative. It's just here's how I kind of see things. If I am a company that wants to create a blockchain with a token that accomplishes a mission, And I just want to make sure that that mission is valid. 
Um, if I can assign some sort of value to that token, it doesn't have to be the next Bitcoin. It doesn't have to be the next thing that's going to Lambo and go to the moon twice, right? It could be something that has a value of a couple bucks and maybe has an, an annual appreciation rate for a currency of something that would be quite reasonable versus the, uh, uh, the, 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 the inflationary currency that we have, a deflationary rate where the currency tends to increase in value by about 10% per annum or even 5% per annum. Imagine how much more powerful the dollar would be if the dollar became about 5% more valuable every year. If that's what I'm looking to do so that somebody will put a stake up into my network, but really the purpose of the blockchain is to do something else, I, that really precludes me from using a proof-of-work algorithm that's going to require a lot of resources to be dedicated. But I need enough incentive to get enough people to be involved with proof of stake to verify the transactions on the network and keep it decentralized enough to not be vulnerable to attack. This is a big part of what I like about ARC. And the most important thing to me with ARC is the concept of a point-click blockchain. And I believe these guys, before this year ends, you will be able to go basically fill out a form and create your own blockchain your own tokens, your own environment with your own uh, controls over proof of stake. And I think that both of these technologies have a place in the world. And the beauty of proof of work is it is controlled on it, – it, it, the word mining is acclable. It really is like mining. The reason gold is so valuable is how much it takes to get an ounce of it out of the ground and then turned into something that is you know, 99% gold. If it wasn't complicated to do that, if it was as easy as going out in the, your, your backyard and, and grabbing a handful of dirt and sifting it through a thing and gold was there, you might think that's a really great thing. But if it was like that everywhere, the gold would be worthless. It would be one of the most worthless substances on the planet. It would be up there with sand, right? I mean, you can get some money for sand, but the, the last time I checked uh, here locally, I get sand delivered for like $5 a yard. Right, and compared to gold. But if I'm going to operate in an environment where, let's say, I want to run a loyalty program for merchants within my supply chain, do I really think that I'm going to be able to get people to dedicate, you know, a bank of GPUs to that? Or would it be easier to get 50 people that have a vested interest in my network, or 100 people that have a vested interest in my network, to each run a node? This actually runs no more energy than a standard server does. You see what I'm saying? So I, I think there's a place for both of them, and it's a matter of where they're going to be applied and how they're going to work. And we just don't know what the future is yet. And some other killer technology may come along in this space that nobody's even thought of yet. There's some stuff out there that people are really jazzed up about, but personally right now I think the majority of it is more hype than concrete. But concrete may come someday in a, in a new form of technology. No one even really talked about proof of stake, uh, you know, when let's we start, started getting to the first forks of Bitcoin like Litecoin, etc. No one even thought about it. Today they keep bantering around with Ethereum going a proof of stake model, and that will change huge things. It would be like one of the major uh, motion picture manufacturers back during the VHS beta debate saying we're only going to use one or the other. Not all of them do, but one would maybe, let's say it was, you know, was the 20th Century Fox or something had said that. Could that have swung the, the pendulum the other way? Who knows? 
anyway, with that, let's go ahead. I got a question now for Chef Keith Snow on sous vide. Actually, a couple of questions combined in one answer. Okay, Chef Keith Snow with HarvestEating.com and FoodStorageFeast.com. I get questions from you guys and gals um, all the time about sous vide cooking. So I'm going to combine two of those questions into one answer today. So first of all, what is sous vide? Well, it's spelled S-O-U-S and then V-I-D-E, sous vide. And this is a style of cooking that was popularized back in the early 70s. And uh, two gentlemen were messing around and, and they kind of perfected this method. And in my years in the restaurant industry, um, it started to, you know, show its head here and there in the, in the fine dining world, but it wasn't something that was overly popular. And it's just been amazing to me in the last couple of years how social media and the internet has made Something that, you know, was from the seventies go crazy. And there are a lot of, uh, sous vide machine makers out there. I've been contacted by a number of them in recent years looking for help promoting their devices. And it's just, uh, it's everywhere. So what is it? Basically you're taking food, usually protein, but also vegetables can be done and other things as well. And you're putting them inside of a plastic bag. Then they're submerged into a water bath and then the sous vide circulator, which basically looks like a, I don't know, a metal pipe, a fancy metal pipe with a digital readout is put in there and plugged into the wall. So these things will circulate water. So the water is moving around. I mean, it's not like a waterfall or anything, but water is circulating around and it gets to a certain temperature and the sous vide devices are able to keep that exact temperature throughout the cooking process. And usually it will come up to temperature quite quickly. And then the food is just cooked by the circulating water. The water never touches the food. No air is really touching the food. Um, and that's basically it. And the reason people like it is you get what's called edge to edge cooking. So when you, let's just talk about a good old ribeye. When you take a ribeye and, um, you know, a lot of folks make the mistake of not letting their ribeyes or steaks or whatever kind of warm up a bit. They take them out of a 37 degree refrigerator. They'll throw some salt and pepper on them. And within a couple of minutes, they are on a, you know, a, a skillet that's on a very hot flame or on a very hot gas grill or what have you. The surface of the cooking area could be, you know, four or 500 degrees. So you got something going from 37 degrees or let's say it got to 40 degrees and it's thrown onto a super hot surface and it starts to sizzle and get very, you know, caramelized and crispy and cooked on the outside. And the inside in a lot of cases is super rare, sometimes bloody. And, you know, people will get a steak like that and the outside looks good and they'll cut it open. Oh, geez, it's too rare. Oh, what are we going to do? Well, we can put it in the microwave. And I've been to many parties and, and seen that done before. Generally a disaster. Um, and it's just because the heat is so intense and the temperature difference between the cooking surface and the inside of the meat, um, you wind up with something that's kind of cooked to burnt on the outside and you know, unpleasantly raw on the inside. Now, conversely, with sous vide cooking, you've got very gentle heat and none of it is extreme and the heat is never really touching the meat. It's just kind of touching the plastic bag and you can get something that's cooked 
with edge to edge cooking. So in other words, the, the pink or whatever inside goes from one end to the other. And then you sear the outside when you're done. We'll talk about that in a minute. And you have something that is, uh, really well cooked. And it looks like those, you know, uh, photographs that you see of those high dollar steakhouses where the, when you cut into the three inch thick, um, well, maybe two inch thick, you know, filet mignon, it's cooked edge to edge and wonderful. It's not like seared super hard and then halfway, halfway brown in the middle and then a little slice of red. It's cooked edge to edge. So it's a nice uh, presentation. It's also a nice way to cook. Now let's get to the questions. So um, there were two of them and uh, one was from Brandon and he is worried and wondering about plastic bags. Now there's a lot of information out there about plastic bags having um, endocrine disruptors in there, you know, BPA, other things that may mimic estrogen and all that. And um, just, you know, cooking a plastic bag in water for a long period of time, does it transfer any of the chemicals that are present in the bag into the food? This is a very legitimate concern. And what I do see a lot uh, on the internet with people that are messing around with sous vide is they get the circulator, but they don't have a vacuum packing machine. They don't have any proper vacuum packing bags. So they get a Ziploc bag, throw the meat in there and put it in the circulator. Now I've seen very good, um, chefs do this. Now I would not do that because those bags, um, they're crap. Basically a Ziploc bag is not meant to be cooked in. It's not meant to be boiled or you're never going to boil it in a sous vide, but it's not meant to be in contact with hot water for a long time. And they don't um, advertise that it's used for that. They're not claiming that it's used for that. And there could be chemicals. I can guarantee you there are chemicals in there that may or may not transfer to your food. But the point is that is not the way to do it. So a proper vacuum bag is something that is manufactured completely different than a simple zip bag. They have layers inside of there. There's nylon in there. And these are meant to take severe conditions like boiling in the bag, like freezing. And these are going to be much um, less likely to allow any chemicals to pass into the food. They are considered food grade and that is what you want to use. You do not want to use a zip bag. So Brandon, I would not be worried um, about using a proper vacuum bag and you're going to get much better um, results when you take your steaks or roasts or whatever, whatever it is you're going to not roast, but steaks and chops Whatever you're going to cook and sous vide, if you vacuum pack it first, you're going to get better results because when you put it into a plain old zip bag without any vacuum, um, it's just not, you could have water leak in there. And that's the other thing. Those bags are garbage. Zip bags like that, they leak all the time. There's always little rips at the, where the, you know, the zipper or the, press together thing meets. So I definitely would not use that. Use a proper, you, know, you can get a food saver at the store. I don't know how much they cost anymore, but they seem to do a good enough job for this. And that's the way you want to go. So Brandon, that's the answer to that is avoid zip bags. Go with the real deal. Next up was a friendly lady. I cannot remember her name. And uh, rather than sifting through the emails, I just figured I'd answer her question. And it goes like this. We all know what a um, slow cooker can do for, um, a busy family. 
just, you know, you put on the slow cooker in the morning and you get home and the house smells wonderful and you've got your, I don't know, stew or whatever it is that you put in there is wonderfully done. I mean, Instapots, they're, they're all the rage now. Every, every mommy blogger in the world has an Instapot these days and they can be very handy for uh, making food nice and soft and tender and delicious, but also convenient. So you come home with the kids or maybe you don't have kids, but you come home at six o'clock after a long, busy day. And, you know, most people aren't like me and they don't enjoy the, the whole process of cooking as much. They like the eating part, but maybe not the cooking part. So what do you do? You know, how do you um, use your sous vide machine? And here's where she was going with the question is, how about I take my steaks or chicken breasts or, you know, salmon, whatever it might be, put it in bags, put it into my sous vide cooker and fill it up with ice water and then um, turn it on. And when I get back, it'll all be cooked and wonderful. Now, that is a good, uh, sounds good, but it's never going to work. And here's why. You can put um, a vacuum bag with with a steak in it inside of an ice water bath, turn on your circulator, and it is going to melt that ice in no time. Remember, most of the time you're going to be cooking at about 140 degrees. That's going to melt ice very fast. Take an ice cube and turn on your hot water under your sink. I don't think most people's hot water gets over 120 and what happens to the ice cube? It's going to disappear really fast. So um, the answer is, can you do that? Yeah, you can do that, but that meat is going to be cooked very quickly. The ice is not going to be um, a long-term barrier to uh, that machine, you know, starting to cook the meat. So it's not going to give you that kind of crock pot started in the morning, it's ready in the afternoon thing. Now, can you do that? You can do that. You could cook the meat. You could leave at 9 o'clock in the morning, turn on your sous vide, come back at 5 o'clock, and that meat will be cooked and ready for you. But... What will happen to it? Well, this is what will happen to it. Um, and when you're, when you're cooking sous vide, most people are, are using nice cuts of meat or steaks or whatever. It will be so tender that it'll just be like pulled pork. It's going to fall apart on you and you're not going to have the texture that a nice steak is going to have. So that does not work because it's just in that warm environment for too long. Now, if you're talking about an extra hour, so let's say you have a dinner party and you don't want to be doing your steaks right when people get there. Could you leave it in the water an extra hour? Absolutely. Nothing. It's not going to cook any further than the temperature that's set. The sous vide machine will control the temperature. So it's not going to be like, oh, crap, I forgot the steaks. It's going to be 190 degrees. If you set it for 142 or whatever it might be, that's the temperature it's going to be at. The only difference is the longer it stays at that temperature, the more um, connective tissues inside will start to break down and you'll get um, a softer piece of meat. So that's not bad in all cases, but you're not going to want to let the thing go for six hours or five hours. That is just not what sous vide is made for. And I am not familiar enough with the newer machines to determine whether or not they have any timing functions to them. I'm sure at some point they will. And that would be the ticket. If you could you know, fill up, um, you know, take three or four steaks, they're vacuum packed. You put them in a, in your, you know, water bath with a bunch of ice. Um, and then you leave them and then the machine turns on at a 
pre-selected point and cooks them and they're ready to go when you get there, sure, that would be great. And maybe if you're pretty fancy, you could take an outdoor, um, I've got a little timer for my hydroponic garden and it turns the pump for the water on at very specific times for very short periods of time, like three or four times a day for six minutes, eight minutes, whatever, whatever you want. I bet you somebody could um, connect their sous vide to one of those little timer situations and let the thing come on and you might be able to accomplish what you're talking about. The only fear is, um, you know, how long is that ice going to last? You know, at your 75 degree house temperature, is it going to last a whole eight hour day? I don't know. Does it really matter? Probably not. If the, if the meat is cold when you put it in there and it's in an ice water bath, it's not going to spoil on you in a short period of time. I just, uh, don't recommend telling you to use devices, um, that is kind of outside of what the manufacturer suggests. So you can take that with a grain of salt. So, um, let's now talk about what you do with meat, you know, when it comes out of the bag. And let's just use this ribeye steak as an example. But when you cook in sous vide, you are going to have a, a very ugly gray piece of meat come out of that bag. Now, that is not a problem because it's going to be cooked beautifully inside. The outside gets a little ugly just because you're not having that sear. So let's just say you are having that dinner party. You've got a couple of steaks. They're cooked. And then when it's time to serve them, you cut the bags open. You get your cast iron skillet ripping hot on the stove and put a couple of pats of good butter in there. You can um, throw in a you know chunk of rosemary or some fresh thyme, a couple garlic cloves, whatever, and then flavor that butter. And then you take your uh, steak out of the bags. Now, it's not going to be um, super wet in there because it's none of the water got in there, so it's not going to be like waterlogged. You take it out and you put it into the skillet and you sear it, and you're going to create a beautiful crust on both sides. But you don't want to, some people go wrong where they'll leave it in there for five minutes. If you do that, you're going to wreck your beautiful um, edge-to-edge cooking inside. You need to have the skillet hot, I mean really hot to the smoke point. You put the meat, you know, 30 seconds or so on each side just to um, change that ugly gray color to <clears throat> a nice golden um, brown and, and wonderful. And that's generally how you'll serve your sous vide meats is by using a technique like that. So all in all, um, I do recommend sous vide cooking. Um, it's not really for the everyday person, but it does have its benefits. And there are a lot of machines out there. I'm not going to recommend any ones in particular. Um, some of them are, you know, operated with your smartphone where you can pick a setting and all that. And, um, you know, that's cool and all. I think the better thing is to figure out what temperature you like your meat at and go with a simpler unit that doesn't have all the iPhone connectivity and Bluetooth and all that. That's just me. Um, you make your own decision there. But I hope this helped you all out there um, thinking about sous vide. It is a pretty cool technique. And if you're going to cook thick pieces of expensive steaks, and this is what I really like about sous vide, is this is going to help you cook them much, much better and get restaurant quality results. And it does take away a lot of the timing issues in putting together a meal. So that's how I would recommend it. Um, and they're not that expensive um, anymore. I mean, years ago when I was in the restaurant business, they were huge devices. I mean, they, and they were very 
you know, laboratory looking. Now they're becoming sleeker and smaller and, you know, much more user friendly. So that's it. I hope you guys and gals, uh, get further into sous vide cooking. And I want to encourage everybody to head on over to Food Storage Feast if you haven't already and check out my uh, long-term cooking course there. There are dozens and dozens of videos available for you. And cool thing that we're working on right now is a whole section on coffee. And this has been something that um, we've wanted to include since the very beginning. We are getting around to it now. And it's going to show you how to make sure <laughs> that uh, if you get into a situation that you can put on your gas mask. Did I just say gas mask? Your oxygen mask first. <laughs> you know, when you're on the plane, they say, parents, you got to put on your oxygen before you help the children. If you're in any kind of a calamity, at least for me, if I wake up and there's no power and, you know, the world's coming to an end, I don't give a crap. I want my cup of coffee first and then I'll deal with it. <laughs> so do check out that section that's coming to the course soon. If you're a student, you just go to the um, course upgrades and you'll find it. Anyhow, thanks so much. I hope everybody has a great weekend. Thanks, Jack. Take care. Trying to get Chef up to speed a little bit on some of the newer models of uh, sous vide uh, cookers. Uh, I just I, I, I've been a big fan of, of a particular model, and I've never reviewed it because I really wanted to put it through its paces, and it died on me. Um, it is the uh, uh, the Jewel Cooker by uh, Chef Steps, and it works really good, but it did eventually die. And it had the ability to set timers. And uh, the Innova has the ability to do that as well. And I've just recently ordered an Innova. I want to use it in Biltong for breakfast with some things. And it has um, Bluetooth capability and Wi-Fi capability, including the ability to do something like, uh, I now know what time I'm going to be home. So my sous vide that's been sitting there waiting all day long, uh, I can log into my network basically through an app and say, well, start it now. So what we can do if we want to use that ice bath hold approach as we take our steak and we 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 uh, have it seasoned the way we want when we put it in our vacuum seal bag, uh, we put that in the freezer. And in the morning when we're leaving, what we do is we take that frozen steak or steaks or whatever it is in our bag, and we put that into that ice water bath inside whatever container we're going to sous vide cook in it, and we set our timer to, to start the cooker at let's say four o'clock or five o'clock or whenever. Or if we're using something with remote network capability, we can log in and tell it when to start. Because Chef's right. If you, if you, if you cook a piece of ribeye at 140 degrees in a sous vide cooker, it will never get well done. It will be pink. But it will, the texture after a certain amount of time at that temperature will really begin to degrade. But we definitely, we don't need an external timer. You can do that. He's, he's right about that too. But then it comes down to like, well, is it like a preset thing that when it turns on, it knows what temperature to be at or whatever. But a lot of these cookers, especially the Anova, uh, and the Jewel, and you know, maybe my Jewel just, I, I did use it a lot. Maybe it was a lemon. I don't know. But when, when it failed, I decided I would give the Innova a shot. And uh, when you have that capability, you can you can tell it when to start, and that kind of takes away that problem. Uh, last question for council members today. We have a special guest appearance, uh, J.R. Haley, who's a retired Air Force Master Sergeant, huge AR-10 enthusiast, and I had a question from a listener about an AR-10 build. 
As I've said in the past, I love my ARs, but I probably own more of them than I would otherwise just to piss off people that don't think I should have them. I'd probably have one AR, uh, AR-15 and one AR-10, and that would be it. Uh, and I would be done for the rest of my life, but I own a couple, uh, a couple extra AR-15s just because people don't think I should have them. And uh, so I, I'm the guy, I get more excited when I'm at a gun show and I look and I see like this kind of like worn a little bit, uh, you know, Marlin early lever gun and I look at it and there's no cross bolt safety and I realize it's like from the 60s and it's like a 357 Magnum. I, I'm like, huh, I gotta talk to this guy. Maybe we can make a deal, right? Or I find that, that old pump action 410. Like I, those are the types of things I actually get excited about. I like to hunt. I'm a sportsman. And I'm a big believer in weapons for self-defense, but I also know that in reality, I'm more likely to rely on um, the, the, you know, the handgun. And, and then, you know, 308, great hunting round. I and my buddy Jr. is about to answer this question. He took an elk a couple of years ago, or I guess a year ago now, uh, with an AR-10 with 308. And I have no problem with people hunting with, with AR platforms. I think it's a great thing. I I just like to hunt with, you know, that old Remington 700. That pre-64 Winchester Model 70. These are the things that... So when I got this question, I'm like, well, I can do it. Or I can get the guy that, like, he lives and breathes the AR-10. So, JR, tell us about this AR-10 build. Hey, TSP. This is JR Haley with a guest appearance on the Expert Council to answer a question from Brian in Oregon. Brian states that he would like to purchase an AR-10 for potential hog and coyote hunting. His budget is around $2,500, and he mentions he has a few models that he's been looking at while also toying with the idea of building one from scratch. Brian is familiar with the 308 caliber, and he has a few bolt actions chambered as such. Well, Brian, you pose a really good question on 308, and it's a fantastic and proven caliber in the AR-10 configuration. The inception of the rifle goes all the way back to 1955 when Eugene Stoner developed it as the chief engineer for the Armalite Corporation, which later gave birth to the scaled-down offspring we know today as the AR-15 of our modern fame. Brian, I went through this exact dilemma a few years ago, and your budget provides a great foundation to get you set up and happy for years to come. So let's narrow down a few parameters for your selection. First, uh, to build or not to build? With this being your first AR-10, and it's also being for the purpose of hunting, I would steer you away from building one, and here's why. Unlike the AR-15, which was adopted by the U.S. military and received all the military specification or mil-spec standards that come with that, the AR-10 did not get that. So many of the parts of the AR-10 differ from manufacturer to manufacturer, so building one can be a significant amount of research, trial and error, to get known parts that produce a quality, hassle-free build. Something as seemingly standard as a charging handle can vary widely on what uppers that it'll fit. Now, if you're a tinkerer and you don't mind that level of detail, enjoy the challenge. Building an AR-10 is a project for that path of thinking. Uh, second, barrel length. The models that you suggested, the Ruger SR762 and the Colt Mark LE901-16SE and a handful of the DPMS line come with 16-inch barrels. Using 308 and barrels shorter than 18-inch will deliver an exponential loss in muzzle velocity as compared to starting your walk up 
inch by inch from 18 inches to say 24 inches. The 308 potential is really underserved as you start walking back from 18 inches. Now, of course, we lose some maneuverability with an 18-inch barrel, but for me, that really only starts to come into play when you need to maneuver close quarters, say in a home, or in and out of a vehicle. With the purpose you've described, I'd suggest finding an 18-inch barrel solution as you may want to flex that wonderful 308 power into distances beyond 300 yards, even out to 600, and the velocity that you get from an 18-inch version will ensure that capability for the duration of life that you own the rifle. Uh, For the rifle I purchased, since I wanted an all-purpose rifle for hunting, a farm rifle or a truck gun, uh, even taking it into a fighting role, I did select an 18-inch barrel, and I was able to take down a mature elk after humping the rifle for two days in New Mexico at about 10,700 feet. And I knew that I'd want to have it for that role, so I didn't want to take the extra weight and the loss of mobility running 22 inches or 24 inch barrel which definitely gives me more velocity to use that 308 but that wasn't really the role or the focus I wanted to do but that brings out an interesting point um, when it comes to weight so weight can be a very significant concern when it comes to the AR-10 now, the funny thing about this is our World War II and Korean War grandfathers would say man just man up just carry that rifle because those guys carried around M1 Garands that naked weighed 10 pounds, and then they're probably carrying around somewhere around 82 rounds of 30 out 6 ammunition with that. So they're running 14 to 17 pounds just in the rifle and ammo alone. I mean, if you want to talk about base weight, man, those guys really had to hump that around. So both the Colt and the Ruger that you mentioned have naked weights of around 8.5 pounds, and that's with 16-inch barrels. Whereas an offering like Smith & Wesson M&P 10 comes in at 7.71 pounds naked, and it does that with an 18-inch barrel. So on the other hand, weight can be a great boon if you aren't humping the rifle around and plan to do stationary shooting for more things like blinds or bench rests or off the hood of a vehicle and the like. So keep weight in your thoughts as you settle in on the rifle that you're going to decide on. And whatever the base weight is of the rifle, know you'll just be adding more weight to it with good glass to accompany that 308 caliber, rings, iron sights, and the like. Lastly, I'll discuss some of the brands and values for your consideration. If there had been one available, I would have purchased a Smith & Wesson MP10 when I was in the market. For me, it hit all the high points of a great price, reliability, weight, and accuracy. I have a family member that owns one, and we can do one-inch groups or less at 100 yards all day long, and we can repeat that across several different loads with that rifle. I was really impressed with it, and it's what I wanted to go with. I ended up running out of time, so I went with my second, which was Wyndham Weaponry, and it met all those same metrics. The price point was about $200 more than the MTP-10, but again... That Smith & Wesson at that time was just scarce, and I ran out of time in preparing for that hunt. But I would have loved to have shaved off the extra half-pound weight, though, and that's literally just naked. It was a half-pound difference between those two rifles. Uh, DPMS has several solid choices these days, so I think you'll find yourself happy in the company's lineup if you want to go that route. 
Another brand to consider is Midwest Industries. I'm really familiar with those guys as far as they do focus more on a fighting rifle, but they do 18-inch barrel models too. The one thing you'll find with Midwest Industries is they don't do tapered barrels. They do a lot more heavier barrels, so you'll find them on the northern end of the weight spectrum. But when it comes to reliability and accuracy, they are fantastic. Great customer service from the company as well, and legitimate sub-one-inch group guarantees that they follow up on. So, Brian, best of luck in your quest to find the great AR-10 to add to your collection. I waited several years to make the jump myself, and everyone I've let shoot it ends up with a grin on their face that is really hard to wipe off. And a quick note, you can build a 6.5 Creedmoor upper for a quick change on that rifle uh, if that caliber is something that you're interested in well. The same magazines that feed that 308 will feed the 6.5 Creedmoor cartridge. Thanks, Jack, and have a great day, TSP listeners. Well, great job by JR there, and uh, definitely a better answer than I would have given. I'll tell you, I mentioned like I get more excited by sporting rifles in some ways than I do by uh, tactical rifles. And uh, JR used a, a, a thing that's got me pretty excited, and I've been, I've been trying to talk myself into doing it, but it's 6.5 Creedmoor. And uh, Weatherby makes a variety of rifles from all the way down to their kind of entry-level stuff that's about $600-$700 off on MSRP. But uh, the one that really has my eye is the Mark V Deluxe in 6.5 Creedmoor, which is a MSRP of like $2,700. And uh, it's just real hard. It's much lower street price. It's still just an expensive rifle. But uh, I'll tell you what, I am uh, kind of enthralled with that caliber. As much as I love the 3006 and... Uh, while he when he said that, I immediately pulled up my little uh, my little gun porn page, and, and there's my Mark V Deluxe sitting there beckoning to me. But uh, we shall see. We shall see. It won't be anytime soon. We just put that out there kitchen in, so that set back the expendables budget quite a bit, and we're not quite done yet. Anyway, so my question today has to do with aquaponics. This comes from John in Blackhawk, Colorado. He says, do you ever completely drain your wicking beds to prevent anaerobic crap from building up or growing in the soil? Details I just heard in a few different videos that say you should do this every so often, but I suspect it's BS since oxygen-rich water is flowing through constantly. Maybe I'm wrong. Do you do this, John? John, I do do this, but I don't do it for that reason. I drain my tanks every year when we get into the time of the year that we have uh, freeze problems because if we drain the tanks and the pipes then we don't have water in there that can freeze and burst and break and cause trouble and make me unhappy on a cold winter's day and I'm trying to fix things so we have our uh, flow through wicking beds set up so that we can shut off the supply line inside the greenhouse where things are a lot more protected and then we can shut off the return line and then in the return line itself, we have an inline valve hooked up to a T at the lowest point so that once I shut off the, the main return line at the greenhouse, I can open that valve and all of the tanks drain. And if you were concerned about this, this would be a real easy thing to do anyway. And I do think it makes sense to do for frost protection. But if you... 
do this, then you have the ability to do it if you happen to have any kind of concerns or things that you're worried about or things like that in regard to uh, anaerobics. And you also have the ability, if you're doing maintenance, to uh, kind of eliminate that from the equation. Sure, you'll drain out uh, uh, all of the overage in your tanks. Now, the, the problem with this comes down to the fact that um, you do not actually drain out completely your tanks. You drain out your lines when you do this. This has me thinking of ways to set up an easy way to completely drain the tanks because I've this year while my approach worked and of course as soon as you drain them you drain them ahead of your your freeze not the day before your freeze you get to a point where you've kind of reset time of the year um, and you can still irrigate lightly on the surface if you have some stuff you're overwintering or what have you but as soon as you stop the supply your wicking continues and your level of water begins to drop in your you know your 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 beds but it would be nice to be able to completely drain them because what i had happen to me this year is one of my tanks had the bulkhead rupture and i ended up having to completely take it apart which was okay because it was a a deep water tank that i was turning into a wicking bed anyway which is partially why it happened, because it wasn't completely drained, because it had fish in it. Um, but it certainly could happen to uh, a wicking bed that had water in the bottom. But that gets us out of the, you know, at some point during that process, you're going to have pretty much a dry bed that you're going to restart. So if there is a potential for problem there, it's, it's mitigated by that, but it's not why I do it. In general, I don't think it's a big concern. I've dug up wicking beds that are a couple years old. I have never found a large amount of uh, anaerobic component to what's going on in them. And this includes flow through and basically constant fill. So constant fill is where you know, we have a float valve and it doesn't actually flow through. And that would be much more likely to have anaerobics. The one bed set of beds that I built that when I tore them apart because I decided to do something else, with the only anaerobics I found in it were we had a rock base And I'd put some pipe down into the rock. And I'd filled that pipe with dirt to facilitate the upward wicking. And it was only the dirt inside that pipe that had any sort of an anaerobic smell. And I, I just wouldn't use that approach again because I found it unnecessary. And otherwise, you know, you might find a little spot here, a little spot there. And if you kind of sniff at it, you get a little bit of like, yeah, that's probably a little anaerobic. But I, I, I have never, like had to take one apart for whatever reason and found it completely anaerobic. It just it just doesn't happen, especially flow through. It may be the possibility that it may be more likely to occur uh, if you have a static wicking bed. And the people you're listening to, maybe that's what they're talking about. I don't know. I do know this. We do not want massive amounts of anaerobic activity in any of our, our gardens. We don't. But I don't believe that having a little bit of it here or there is a big problem. I don't think nature works in a completely aerobic environment, and there's a place for everything. And things over time will sort themselves out. So pretty much what I would say is if you're running wicking beds, and you're getting good positive growth rates out of them, and everything looks like it's working well, then don't worry about it. But having the ability to drain them for maintenance purposes and for frost protection... I think is incredibly valuable. And if there's anything to it, then that annual, you know, annual draining to prevent broken pipes 
should be more than sufficient to deal with it. And again, you are right when we're doing flow through that we have that highly oxygenated water coming through there on a constant basis. And I think everything that we can do to improve the oxygen levels in our system makes a lot of sense. And I'll be doing some things this year to further improve the oxygen levels in our systems. Um, but if you want to, if you want to take a look at the videos I recently released a couple days ago, I did a, uh, a five-part walkthrough of the property, and it ends with two of my aquatic systems. And if you want to know if there's oxygen there, look at the water clarity. Uh, I fill up a quart jar and show you the water clarity. I'll put a link to that video on the show notes today. There's just no question that, obviously, this is a highly oxygen-rich environment. And if you're moving that water through wicking beds, and I am, I'm not worried about those wicking beds going anaerobic at all. As, and I guess here would be the big thing. In a flow-through bed, does the water flow through consistently? As long as it's doing that, I highly doubt you have any anaerobic problems. If you get to a point where you were able to run the water at, let's say, you know, if you measured the discharge, that it took uh, 30 seconds to fill a quart jar. And I don't even know if that would be the case. I haven't done this recently, so I don't remember. But let's say that was the case. In 30 seconds, that jar's full. Or in 20 seconds, that jar's Whatever it was that you were happy with that maintained the level without overfilling it, and it was flowing through there, and it wasn't backing up on you, if all of a sudden you have to cut that in half or something, then you know you've got icky, gick, and goop down in that, in that rock base. Uh, another thing that I'm really big on is rotating uh, sleeves. So I have two types of sleeves in my wicking beds. One is a, usually a two-inch piece of pipe that goes all the way down to the bottom of the bed. And then my input will usually be a half-inch, three-quarter, or one-inch line that comes to that two-inch pipe and has a bunch of holes drilled in it down in the bottom. The water goes down that pipe. And roots can and will go in that sleeve pipe. And that is to keep you know stuff from gathering around the pipe and clogging it up. But if you have holes in it, all I do is once a week when I go out to my beds and check on them, and I, you, you do need to check and make sure your water is continuously running. You will have valves clogging stuff because you're running at slower speeds. So I just open it all the way up and put it back where it was set, and you know you're good. And then I just grab that sleeve pipe and I just turn it a couple times. And it will spin around, you know, it's not like it's in concrete. So you can rotate it. So you rotate it. If there's roots starting to get in there, it cuts them off. And then you have usually a 4-inch or 5-inch piece of pipe that goes down the center, and that's where your stand-up is inside there. And roots can get in there not as bad because there's no dirt or fill or anything for them to use in there, and it's a much more open airspace. But every once in a while, I'll take that sleeve, and I just turn that sleeve and rotate it a little bit. Uh, maybe the way I do them, I actually have a big notch in them, so uh, they go over the stand-up pipe because the stand-up pipe is not directly off the bottom. It comes in from the side. So you can kind of go just a couple inches back and forth with it, and that'll help it. And they're so big that you can reach down in there and clean them out if you get any kind of problem. But it's that, that one pipe that has more of a problem. People talk about them getting into the exhaust, I guess you'd say, your discharge line. If you build them the way I'm building them, where they have a stand-up pipe that's that's in open air by an excluder that's just like a ebb and flow bed without the bell siphon on top of it, there's no way those roots are getting in that pipe. They just they would have to find their way through four inches of open air into a hole that's an inch in diameter, three-quarter inch in diameter, and it just isn't going to happen. So, well, not open air. It would be through water, but it just it just doesn't happen. I haven't had problems with it. And, again, that, that downpipe, that downpipe sleeve, you just rotate that once a week, and you're not going to have any buildup of uh, roots in there. The first year I did these, I didn't do that, and all of a sudden I have one backing up, 
and I was able to pull the sleeve all the way out, and it was completely plugged with roots. And I pulled it out, and it had created enough of an opening for itself. I was able to shove it right back in, and that's when I developed my weekly rotation policy. So there you go. Uh, hopefully that helps you and others that are doing wicking beds, and, and, and you should be. I think they're probably the number one grow uh, media uh, out there for healthy plants and improving the, the, the health of your systems that are aquatic or aquaponics. And what I like about them best is they work fine in an aquaponic system, but they also work in an aquatic system because we can bring fertility to the soil. Uh, so when you have a large aquatic system that you're not going to overstock with fish, you can still do wicking beds, and it's not aquaponics, it's aquaculture with wicking beds. And it, to me, that's just as good, and that's the majority actually of what I do. With that, we've wrapped up another episode of the Survival Podcast. I want to remind you, you can help support us by doing your online shopping where? tspaz.com, where you can see all of my product reviews. You can check all of those out, but as long as you do your shopping through tspaz.com when you shop online, you help support the Survival Podcast and the work that we do. Today I have for you Doenjang, and I actually have Simpio Doenjang, fermented soybean paste, if you're not familiar with that. This is a Korean kitchen staple. And good doenjang is made with soybeans and koji, which is a starter, a fermentation starter, and water and salt. And that's pretty much what this stuff's made with. And most doenjang available for sale in the United States is made with wheat flour and MSG and soybean flour instead of actual soybeans so it's not chunky. It's just not as good. This stuff is the real deal. This is as close, I think, as you're going to get to Korean housewife homemade fermented soy paste as you're going to get anywhere on a shelf or a store in the United States of America. Again, it's named by a company called Sempio, S-E-M-P-I-O. And what are you going to do with this? You can do all of the things that they do in Korean cooking with it, but this is one of my cooking cheat codes. So here's an example of how I use this stuff. When you're going to grill up some chicken or pork and you want to do an incredible finishing basting sauce, do something like this. Take a couple, three teaspoons, depending on how much you're making, of this uh, of your favorite barbecue sauce. And I use this Zeb Smoky Apple that I have in the in the review today. It's not on Amazon. You can only get it from this place in New Hampshire. Uh, use some soy sauce, some beer, some chopped up chipotle peppers and adobo, uh, a little bit of really top cell fish sauce, and then you use enough of this dough and jank, probably two to three tables, two to three teaspoons, I'm sorry, to kind of thicken it and make it, it like, it's a sauce, but it's more thick and a little bit chunky. And then you, at the end of your cook, you baste that. I made some of this up for the pork tenderloin that we did on the Biltong for Breakfast episode. And my buddy David was eating it like salsa on chips. And I'll admit I ate some too like that. It was, it was fantastic. The, the depth of the soy gives this like umami characteristic that you, know, you always hear talked about, especially in Asian cooking. And it brings this depth of flavor. And then you have the sweet from the barbecue and the heat from the chipotle. It's just very, very good. I give another recipe uh, for cooking tilapia. People say tilapia is bland. I won't give the recipe on the air, but if you go read the thing, I mean, if the way I put it in the review, if you cook tilapia the way that I just told you to, using this stuff, and you think it's bland, you need a tongue transplant. Because it, it, there's no way it's good. It's garlic and ginger and doenjang and gochujang, which is a fermented chili paste. And, uh, and it's, just, it's very, very good. A little bit of lime. I mean, it's fantastic. And there's all kinds of things that you can do with this. I give you the complete rundown for doing the fish with it uh, in the write-up today. That you can find it at tspaz.com or just go to survivalpodcast.com and 
scroll down until you see it. And I, I want to hear from you guys. I mentioned a bunch of stuff in here that I consider to be cheat codes. Uh, the gochujang. Uh, curry paste would be another one. Fish sauce. Um, better than bullion, uh, bullion paste are another example of what I consider cooking cheat codes. Things that you use a little bit here and a little bit there, and they totally transform what you're cooking. I was thinking about doing a standalone, uh, you know, Just Jack podcast on a Tuesday called Jack's Cooking Cheat Codes. If you'd be interested in that, let me know and check this stuff out. I think it'll change your kitchen if you start adding some of these cool things to it. Uh, next up, let's talk about our song of the day. This is a great one for a Friday, and it's funny because it was probably supposed to be for Monday because we had the show that didn't happen this week, and the song of the day for that Wednesday show was so perfect for the situation that I decided not to use it for the next day, and I punted it until we rebooked that guest. I know that's crazy and it doesn't make any sense, but this song should be a Friday song. It is by the Zach Brown Band, released in 2010, and it's called um, Knee Deep. You know, knee deep in the water somewhere. And this was actually featuring Jimmy Buffett. And uh, I liked it. I love Jimmy Buffett. Many of you know I'm a parrothead. But I was, I was starting to feel like it was becoming country music artist goal to write a song that sounded like something Jimmy Buffett would do and then get Jimmy Buffett to do it with you. But check out what I found out on Song Facts about this song. This song features top tropical rock singer, songwriter Jimmy Buffett. Tropical rock That's that's not what Jimmy Buffett, but whatever, I'll, I'll forgive that. Uh, bassist John Driscoll Hopkins explained to Billboard magazine that the collaboration happened as a result of a chance meeting in 2009. We met him on a camping trip last year, he reported, and just sat around the fire with him for a while. This was a quick friendship. He's a real cat, really down to earth and doesn't have a whole lot of ego, and just is a super nice guy. We did a lot of vocals down at his place in Key West, And he happened to come through. So when we got him to sit in, and it sounded great, it sounded like a Buffett song when he sings it. Whatever he sings, sings sounds like a Buffett song, you know. So, I mean, I get everything here. I get the concept of, you know, just separating yourself from life for a while and having a break. Uh, by the way, the, the, one of the writers of the song said he was broken up with a girl and he just needed to get somewhere where there was water and take a break from reality for a while. That was part of the genesis of the song. I get that. I get a perfect, you know, kind of party song for a Friday. And I get Jimmy Buffett. John Adam, bro, you picked a good one for a Friday, even though I think it was for a Monday. Enjoy it, guys. And I'm, I'm kind of getting away from reality. I put out a video today. Put out a video today, another great song, and I'm not going to play it here today for you at the end of the show. I'm just going to tell you about it. It's Let's Get It On by Marvin Gaye. And I put it together with some footage of spawning activity of comet goldfish in one of my ponds. I'll have a link in the show notes. It's already out on Facebook and Twitter and, and, and YouTube. But if you go take a look at it, it will be the most epic thing. It will be the most epic thing you see on the Internet today. It will be funny. It will put a smile on your face. And I did it for the following reasons. There's too much bullshit on TV. There's too much bullshit in your news feed. There's too much crap that doesn't matter. And in the words of the song you're about to hear, we're going to put the world away for a minute and pretend we don't live in it. That's why I put that video out today. So that worked really good with this song as well. But uh, I'll just say with that video, here's to all future generations of goldfish and to not taking life too seriously. And that song fits this as well. With that, this has been Jack Spierko signing off for this week now. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
for a minute Pretend I don't live in it Sunshine gonna wash my blues away Had sweet love but I lost it She got too close so far And now I'm lost in the world Trying to find me a better way Wishing I was knee deep in the water somewhere Got the blue sky breeze and it don't seem fair Only worry in the world is the tide gonna reach my chair Sunrise, there's a fire in the sky Never been so happy, never felt so high And I think I might have found me my own kind of paradise Sent me back in a minute Bought a boat and I sailed off in it Don't think anybody's gonna miss me anyway Mind on a permanent vacation The ocean is my only medication Wishing my condition ain't ever gonna go away Cause now I'm knee deep in the water somewhere Got the blue sky breeze blowing wind through my hair Only worry in the world is the tide gonna reach my chair Sunrise, there's a fire in the sky Never been so happy, never felt so high And I think I might have found me my own kind of paradise This champagne shore washing over me It's a sweet, sweet life Living by the salty sea One day you could be as lost as me Change your geography Maybe you might be In the water somewhere Got the blue sky breeze Blowing wind through my hair Only worry in the world Is the tide gonna reach my chair Sunrise, there's a fire in the sky Never been so happy Never felt so high And I think I might have found me My own kind of paradise Come on in the water's nice Find yourself a little slice Grab a backpack and lunch You never know until you try When you lose yourself You find the key to paradise. 